Okay, we're on page page four of this salvation and atonement in the Bible. And we're on salvation and sacrifices in the rest of the Hebrew Bible. So we've we've pretty much covered Leviticus uh, as far as we need to for this uh, study. And we're on salvation and sacrifices in the rest of the Hebrew Bible on page 4. And we're starting with Joshua 1, 1 to 9. Uh, and I'm not going to have us look that up. Because Joshua 1, 1 to 9 has to do with Israel coming into the promised land. So in a sense, uh, they're... Uh, they have fully been saved from Egypt. And so my question is, is that coming kind of a type of our salvation? Is it an example of what God does when he saves us? And, and how do we unpack that? I would, I would like to suggest that salvation in terms of Egyptian if, captivity, if we look at the Exodus, for example, it's salvation from something. In the case of Egypt, what is it salvation from? Bondage. Bondage. Okay. So, slavery. Mm-hmm. It's not salvation from God. So, uh, now we move to Judges 2, 11 to 21, and I think we ought to look that up and read it. Christina, you want to read it? Then the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and worshipped the Baals, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were all around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and worshipped Baal and the Astartes. As the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunders who plundered them, and he sold them into the power of their enemies all around, so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them to bring misfortune, as the Lord had warned them and sworn to them, and they were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up leaders to rescue them from the power of these raiders, but they wouldn't even obey their own leaders because they were unfaithful, following other gods and worshiping them. They quickly deviated from the way of their ancestors who had obeyed the Lord's commands and didn't follow their example. The Lord was moved by Israel's groaning under those who oppressed and crushed them, so the Lord would raise up leaders for them, and the Lord would be with the leader, and he would rescue Israel from the power of their enemies as long as that leader lived. But it came about when the judges died that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And he said, Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not listened to my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left before when he died in order to test Israel by them whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk in it as their fathers did or not. So the Lord allowed these nations to remain, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. 
Okay. Um, you notice that my version calls them leaders, and your version calls them judges. The actual term is shofet, or shofetim, which means judges. And it has a legal sense. A judge was someone who, was, who met in the court and made decisions along with other judges about given cases. What is interesting here is that they don't seem to do that. Their job is to rescue people, rescue Israelites from the hands of their enemies. So if you study the history of judges and, and court cases in Mesopotamia, which is where formal court uh, courts and everything uh, that influenced Israel or influenced the ancient Near East in terms of Semitic peoples, that's the origin of it all. If you study it carefully, the goal seems to be of the judge or the, of the, those presiding in the court case, not as much to establish a verdict and a penalty as to get reconciliation between two estranged parties. The, the, goal, the goal of the original court was to rescue the oppressed, uh, from the oppressors. Uh, it's not until the Neo-Babylonian period, possibly the Neo-Assyrian period, uh, but I know certainly in the Neo-Babylonian period, courts became much more formal and much more given to verdicts. They were, they were more concerned about verdicts and penalties than they were about conciliating two parties that were estranged. Um, so so the, this an interesting... Um, Suggestion. And this is a, this is a, my tentative analysis based on my studying uh, court cases. But given this passage, we can't say that judges here in this setting is strictly a legal term. It, it really has more to do with with uh, um, relieving Israel from her oppressors, so rescuing, uh, delivering. Okay, uh, let's go to First uh, Samuel fifteen, twenty-two to twenty-three. And Samuel said, "Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obedience to the voice of the Lord? Surely to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is no less a sin than divination." And stubbornness is like iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Okay. Uh, here's the prophetic voice. And now, now we're jumping away from the concept of salvation to uh, atonement with sacrifices. Here, the prophetic voice suggests that obedience is more important to God than blood offerings. Blood sacrifices. We're going to find this theme extensively in the prophets as we move into them. And, and I would say that God's preference is restoration of us into his image over against some kind of effort to get his favor. Um, because I think that's how Israel came to view the sacrifices. They could buy off God. Uh, they could placate him. They could manipulate him. They could change his mind by offering sacrifices. 
Um, I, I just want to note in passing Job 1 and 42. Uh, you, if you've read the book of Job, you know that in chapter 1 he offers burnt offerings in behalf of his children after they partied uh, because he's afraid they might have sinned, cursed God in their hearts and sinned against him. And, and so he offers enough offerings for each child. And in the end, when God comes down and talks to Job, he then turns at the end to the three friends and says, you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. And he tells them that they have to offer seven bulls. A bull was an offering a king might give. Because, not because it showed his great wealth and all that. It was because when a king sinned, his sin was so much more serious because he was the leader of the people. Uh, and he would lead them all astray. So he had to offer a bull. Uh, which, which means that because they had to offer a bull, they, they had sinned grievously by misrepresenting God. And more than that, there's seven of them and only three of them. So they're having to offer for more than double the quantity, which means their sin was just exceedingly, exceedingly, uh, grievous to God. So, I, I, th- I threw that in as passing. I think, I think that it's important to note that um, offering burnt offerings, which is these were burnt offerings, uh, was a form of having atonement. And, and the question is, uh, what is that atonement? And we'll see if we can find it as we move through. Numerous psalms speak of salvation. And... Um, we can probably move through these fairly quickly. Let's turn to Psalm 22. If you, if you feel like I'm moving fast, I am. <laughs> because uh, we have a lot of ground to cover this year, and I'd like to get there by the end of the year. So Psalm 22 uh, is a messianic psalm. I will read a few verses and then I'll hand it over to you, Sergio. My God, my God, why have you left me all alone? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my anguished groans? My God, I cry out during the day, but you don't answer. Even at nighttime, I don't stop. You are the Holy One enthroned. You are Israel's praise. Our ancestors trusted you. They trusted you. And you rescued them. They cried out to you and you were, they were saved. They trusted you and they weren't ashamed. But I'm just a worm, less than human, insulted by one person, despised by another. All who see me make fun of me. They gape, shaking their heads. He committed himself to the Lord, so let God rescue him. Let God deliver him because God likes him so much. But you are the one who pulled me from the womb, placed me safely at my mother's breast. I was thrown on you from birth. You've been my God since I was in my mother's womb. Please don't be far from me. Because trouble is near and there's no one to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me. As a raving and roaring lion, I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. 
and you have laid me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers have encompassed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen. You answer me. Okay. Why don't we stop with that? Um, what is salvation here? What what metaphor uh, seems to predominate? Deliverer. Deliverance. Yeah. Okay. Rescuing. Yeah. Okay. Let's uh, move to another psalm. Psalm uh, 54. Save me, O God, by your name, and vindicate me by your might. Hear my prayer, O God. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For the insolent have risen against me. The ruthless seek my life. They do not set God before them. But surely God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will repay my enemies for their evil. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. So what is salvation here? Getting back at enemies. Getting back at your enemies. Yeah, vengeance. Vengeance. Uh, how does that relate to salvation that we have? Does God save us by getting back at our enemies? I'm going to say, in a sense, yes. And here's how I think it works. Our real enemy is who? Satan. Satan okay? Mm-hmm. And sin. But sin isn't a person, so uh, let's let's focus on Satan. How how what is the best way to get back at Satan? Through God. So God deals with Satan. Yeah. And how does he get back at Satan? Show him love. (laughs) (laughs) And does that get back at Satan? If you hate if you hate love. Isn't it the worst thing you could do to a person who hates love but to love them? And that's, that's what uh, Paul means when he says, if your enemy hunt, be hungry, feed, uh, feed him, and if he be thirsty, give him water to drink. For by so doing, you will pour heap coals of fire on his head. It's torture to a person who hates and who is bent on doing evil to people. Bent on cruelty, bent on on uh, trying to uh, destroy. It's 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 the worst kind of revenge to them. They see it as revenge mm-hmm. and retaliation to love them. I, there's another way in which we get even with Satan, and we do that, and that is by doing the very thing he hates to represent the character of God. That's the best revenge we could ever have on him. So uh, I, I've transformed the metaphor, as you can see, <laughs> to from hate to love. Uh, what else? What other metaphors are in this passage? God is my helper. Yeah. yeah, my helper. He sustains my life. He sustains us. 
He doesn't necessarily rescue us completely from our enemies and from uh, sin. Well, he does rescue us from sin, but he doesn't rescue us completely from his enemies. He helps us, he sustains us through whatever we go through uh, at Satan's hands. And there's deliverance. Verse 7, and because God has delivered me from every distress. And that's what we can be assured of that God is in the business of doing, is delivering us from sin. That's what he seeks to do. And and he seeks to do it through his love. Okay, Psalm 91. Living in the Most High's shelter, camping in the Almighty's shade. I say to the Lord, you are my refuge, my stronghold. You are my God, the one I trust. God will save you from the hunter's trap, from deadly sickness. God will protect you with his pinions. You will find refuge under his wings. His faithfulness is a protective shield. Don't be afraid of terrors at night, arrows that fly in daylight, or sickness that prowls in the dark, destruction that ravages at noontime. Even if 1,000 people fall dead next to you, 10,000 right beside you, it won't happen to you. Just look with your eyes and you will see the wicked punished. Uh, I think the, the King James Version says you will see the reward of the wicked. Because you've made the Lord, Lord my fre- refuge, the most high, your place of residence. No evil of resident, you know, no evil will happen to you. No disease will come close to your tent. Because he will order his messengers to help you, to protect you wherever you go. They will carry you with their own hands so that you don't bruise your foot on a stone. You'll march on top of lions and vipers. You'll trample young lions and serpents underfoot. Because you are devoted to me, I will rescue you. I will protect you because you know my name. Whoever you, cr- Whenever you cry out to me, I'll answer. I'll be with you in troubling times. I'll save you and glorify you. I'll fill you with old age. I will show you my salvation. So what metaphors do you find here? Mm, there's deliver him. Okay, there's deliverance. Refuge and fortress. Refuge and fortress. And who, what or who is our refuge and fortress? God. God. You are my refuge, my stronghold. This is a powerful psalm. Uh, It doesn't necessarily fulfill literally in every instance, is it? Sometimes we lose our lives. But ultimately, it is fulfilled because we have eternity to look forward to. Okay, Psalm 107, and Sergio, why don't you read to verse 9. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the adversary, and gathered from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. They wandered in the wilderness in a desert region. They did not find a way to an inhabited city. They were hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted within them. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He delivered them out of their distresses. He led them also by a straight way to go to an inhabited city. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. For he has satisfied the thirsty soul and the hungry soul he has filled with what is good. Okay. Uh Christina, you want to read verse 22, please. Some sat in darkness and in gloom, prisoners in misery and in irons. 
for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. Their hearts were bowed down with hard labor. They fell down with no one to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and gloom and broke their bonds asunder. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wonderful works to mankind. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. Some were sick through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities endured affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wonderful works to mankind, and let them offer thanksgiving sacrifices and tell of his deeds with songs of joy. Okay, uh, we'll stop with that. Again, we have this theme of rescuing, deliverance, uh, but also healing, verse 20. And again, I want to stress, what are we rescued from? Sin. Sin. We're not rescued from God. We're rescued from sin. Okay. Let's move now to Psalm 50. And we're now moving back to sacrifice. Actually, I'll start with verse 7. Listen, my people, I will now speak. Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I'm not punishing you for your sacrifices or for your entirely burned offerings, which are always before me. I won't accept bulls from your house or goats from your corrals, because every forest animal already belongs to me, as do the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every mountain bird, even insects in the field are mine. Even if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, because the whole world and everything in it already belongs to me. Do I eat bulls' meat? Do I drink goats' blood? Offer God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Fulfill the promises you've made to the Most High. Cry out to me. Whenever you are in trouble, I will deliver you, and then you will honor me. What is salvation there? What is atonement? Delivering again. It's delivering, okay. And atonement? It's not mentioned here, is it? But one thing we know it's not, it's not feeding God. And, and that's the way the Mesopotamians viewed the offerings that they brought as feeding the gods. And in fact, there are food offerings in the Hebrew Bible. Sometimes the priests ate part of that offering. Sometimes it was totally burned up, but it was still considered a food offering. But God didn't eat the food. He wasn't hungry for the food. That wasn't what it was all about. It's about dealing with sin. Okay, let's look at the next psalm. Sergio, you want to read Psalm uh, 51, 16 to 19. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering and whole burnt offerings. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. This seems a little contradictory, doesn't it? Uh, God doesn't delight, doesn't want sacrifices. He wants a, a contrite heart. But then if, if he'll just rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, he'll want sacrifices again. Uh, it, it feels to me as though someone added that those lines because maybe they didn't quite resonate with the lines above. Um, it's, it's very difficult 
to mesh those two together because it isn't, you would expect him to say, if you do have a broken spirit, heart and you do repent, uh, then he will, then there will be these offerings. But no, it's rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and that doesn't seem to have anything to do with the entire psalm. But nevertheless, it stands in the canon. Does God delight in blood offerings? Is that what he wants most? And we're going to follow that question through when we read the prophets. So let's move now to Isaiah. And as you can see, I have a lot, a long list of places to read parts of two page, over two page, over one page. Over one page. But I have crossed some of them out, so we're not going to read all of them. Let's look at, start with Isaiah 1, 10 to 20. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who asks this from your hand? Trample my courts no more, bringing offerings is futile. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and calling of convocation. I cannot endure solemn assemblies with iniquity. Your new moons and your appointed festivals my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you stretch out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, rescue the oppressed. Defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Come now, let us argue it out, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be like snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What do you do with that? Pretty clear. It's pretty clear, isn't it? That the sacrifices which God intended help them to realize the seriousness of sin and, and that it leads to death came to be a means of getting in favor with God, to be, placate him, to, to feed him, to whatever it took. And, and it came to be, you could do anything you wanted as long as you bought God off and got off the hook by offering a sacrifice. They became sensitive to the real reason? Yeah. They, they lost it completely. They no longer understood the equation of sin leading to death. So what God is saying here is sacrifices mean nothing when that's the way you use them. Uh, Instead, I want justice, and justice is uh, helping the oppressed, defending the widow, uh, or defending the orphan and pleading for the widow. You remember we talked about the judge, the role of the judge in early periods was to rescue was to defend the widow, the orphan, and the poor, and help the oppressed. That was their role. And so justice in the Old Testament is predominantly doing those things, rescuing. 
And that's what God wants. Okay, we're going to jump uh, over Isaiah 4, 2 to 6 and go to Isaiah 6, 1 to 7. And this is going to be very different from what we've been reading. In the year of King Isaiah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a high and exalted throne, the edges of his robe filling the temple. Winged creatures were stationed around him. Each had six wings, and with two they veiled their faces, and with two their feet, and with two they flew about. They shouted to each other, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heavenly forces. All the earth is filled with God's glory. Door frames shook at the sound of their shouting, and the house was filled with smoke. I said, Mourn for me. I am ruined. I am a man with unclean lips, and I live among a people with unclean lips. Yet I have seen the King, the Lord of heavenly hosts. Then one of the winged creatures flew to me, holding a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth and said, See, this has departed, and your sin is removed. So what is salvation here? And what is atonement here? He, he acknowledges his sin. He opens up his, life, his heart to God and says, I, I am a, a sinful man. And then one of the winged creatures flies to him with a glowing coal that take, is taken from the altar. The altar of burnt offering. There's, there's something that comes to my mind that I think we need to know, and it's involving the very theme of, of these heavenly beings. They say, holy, holy, holy. And it has to do with salvation and atonement. Why is it that Moses was told by God, no one can see me and live? Do you remember? Yeah. It was because of his glory, because because uh, Moses was sinful. Okay. Okay. Because in if he if he saw God's face, which is remember a sign of favor, sign of mercy. His 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 mercy is so glorious and so holy that we in our sinful state, wanting to placate God, wanting to appease His wrath wanting to do something ourselves to to gain his favor. We are out of harmony with that glory. We do everything opposite to that glory. We're not merciful by nature. We're not kind and loving by nature. And in when looking at his face and seeing that glory, it would consume us. Not because God zapped us, but because his, he is a consuming fire. So Moses had to see God's backside, which is his turning away side, his wrath side. And that's the only thing he could bear. And as Ellen White puts it, uh, he could only bear a shadow of God's glory. So applying this story to uh, Isaiah here, the coal off the altar represents, I believe, that glory of him who is love. And the reason I I believe that is because uh, what you can see in the sacrificial system is the final destruction of the wicked. If Jesus died the death that we would have to die without that death, that is, he was our substitute, 
and he died the death that we would die without his his having died we would die the death of the wicked would we not that means that jesus died that death for us and thus he died the second death and if that's the case this sacrificial system not only typifies jesus dying the second death but it typifies that second death itself and so you have this this uh, almost parable the sinner brings the animal he play, presses his head on the animal's head or his hand on the animal's head signifying that he is, what what is he is about to do to that animal is the result of his sin and he takes that knife and he slays that animal indicating that sin leads to death and once that animal is dead they then burn him on the altar the glory of god who is love will consume them and so i believe that it is sin that kills the wicked and after they're dead god consumes them with the fires of his glory and and that that there's interaction uh with that glory earlier uh because they experience the emotional agony of of realizing that they have rejected God's love and his mercy but i i think that's what we're seeing here and it's it's that it's it's Jesus dying that death and showing that it is sin that leads to death not God that has the power to cleanse us It's that demonstration of the truth about God that has power to cleanse us. And so the tongue, the the seraphim taking the um, coal off the altar and touching his lips suggests that the atonement takes away his guilt and removes his sin. He's now got clean lips. the reason he touches the lips is because he he specifically states I am a man of unclean lips. We've come to a good stopping place. This is just the beginning. We have a lot more texts in Isaiah to finish. We won't do them all, but um hopefully we'll get done in about a couple of more sabbaths and then move on to the rest of the prophets and then on to the New Testament. Father, we thank you for giving us your word to demonstrate to us the living truths of what the atonement means what the sacrifices mean and how when we misinterpret their meaning and abuse them and what you had planned for them to teach that they are meaningless i pray that uh, we may not do that to our understanding of jesus death for us and i pray that we may fully grasp who you are as a result of standing at the foot of the cross in Jesus name amen amen amen